Well, let's get a running start from Sunday morning. The contrast, it can't be any more clear. Verse 14 of chapter 2, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The spiritual person, as we talked about on Sunday, has no difficulty appraising evil as well as righteousness, as well as good things, because the spiritual person judges upwardly. That's that word, appraisal, anacrino, to judge upward. Ana meaning upward and crino meaning judgment. And so there's a sense of, of a judgment that, or an assessment or an appraisal that is beyond us, that is upward in nature. And so the spiritual person can discern and understand evil. We don't have to see it. We don't have to feel it. We don't have to experience it to understand the reality of it. However, on the other hand, the natural person really struggles to understand anything of God and spirituality and spiritual things. The natural person cannot rightly appraise holiness. You know this. Think back to when you were in the natural person. The natural man, natural woman. Holiness? You know, worship services, those things, they were hard to appraise. They were hard to be interested in. They didn't make sense to you. It wasn't until you were born again, from the natural to the spiritual. Jesus describes the process. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? Because God is so harsh and closed off? No, because if you don't accept the spiritual, why would you enter it? If you reject the spiritual, if you don't understand the kingdom of God, you're not going to get there. You're not going to go to a place that you don't believe. Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh. And we were all born of flesh, right? And then he says that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there is a spiritual birth that God accomplishes, that God does. When a person comes to him in faith, that moment that the switch is flipped... And we say, yes, Lord, I believe. And He begins to work on us, baptizing us in the Spirit. He he causes us to be born again of the Spirit. And suddenly, verse 16 of chapter 2, For who has known the mind or the understanding of the Lord that He will instruct Him? (laughs) We have the understanding of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Why? Because we have the Spirit of Christ. And only the Spirit of God understands the things of God. Only the Spirit of the person within them knows that person, right? So as we give our lives to Jesus, as we believe in Jesus, His Spirit allows us to understand Him. And what we really talked about, and this I think is absolutely crucial, talking about this with the Lord again today, it really is all about relationship. That God wants us to know Him. That all of these spiritual, marvelous things He does, He doesn't do to thrill us. He does it so that we can understand Him. So we can speak His language. So we get the things of the Spirit. Now, there's a problem, and this is what Paul is gearing up to in chapter 3. This is where he's going, and a large part of why he wrote the letter to the church of Corinth in the first place. There are those who think of themselves as highly spiritual and yet are shockingly carnal. Walking in the natural but thinking that they're spiritual and that was the crisis at Corinth. Oh, they were believers. Paul is addressing Christians. 
And they had received forgiveness and salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. But they took off with the spiritual gifts God-given and began to think that because they had these giftings, they were so spiritual. And no one else was. And then within their own church, they begin to group up. And this group thinks they're the most spiritual. And that group thinks they're the most spiritual. And they're trying to outperform one another in spiritual gifts. And they are missing the whole point that the gifts were given that we might understand and relate to and speak the language of God. Spiritual gifts, I don't know if you thought about it this way. Honestly, I don't think I ever have. That spiritual gifts are for relationship. God gives the gifts of the Spirit that we'll study in 1 Corinthians 12 and again in 1 Corinthians 14. He gives these gifts for relationship. We're to use them for each other in the body. That's relationship. They come from the Father that we might know Him better. That's relationship. That's the point. It's not that we have some kind of self-righteousness or some kind of godliness that makes us bigger or better or greater than other Christians. And that is the trouble at Corinth. Remember, only Paul and James and Jude, just these three, use the word that is translated here, the natural man, the psychikos, where we get our word psyche or psychology. The natural man. James will say in James 3.15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly. It's psychikos, natural. And James says it's demonic. And then Jude says, these are the ones who cause, note this, they cause divisions. They are the Sukikos, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. Put that together. Devoid of the Spirit causes division. When a church is divisive and splitting and breaking into factions, it is because they are either quenching or devoid of the Spirit. You see, the Bible talks about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Where the Holy Spirit is, where the Spirit of God is acknowledged, people are brought together. There's unity. But where the Spirit is denied, where the place is devoid of the Spirit, there's division. Devoid equals division. And the key to unity in the body of Christ is the very Spirit of Christ Himself. That was issue number one at Corinth, and that's what Paul is about to address. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. He's just now gone from calling them natural to calling them fleshly. This is worse. The natural man, the Suki Coast, at least we're dealing with the soul here, but now he goes to the flesh, the Sarkikos, from that word Sarks. I'll come back to that. It caught my attention that Paul began to talk about dealing with division, dealing with strife, dealing with jealousy, and we'll see more of this in a moment. He's talking to them as infants. And I realized, you know, there are two times in the Bible, just twice, where the Word of God talks about infants and division. Infants and division. The first time is back in 1 Kings chapter 3 when two pugnacious prostitutes come before a young King Solomon. They show up. You might remember the story. They are having a fight, an argument over which one of them is the rightful mother of a child. 
As the story unfolds, Solomon hears that one of the two ladies apparently rolled over. They both had children, both had infants, but the one mother rolled over on her infant in the night and killed it. And so, in a moment of sheer depravity, takes her dead baby, slides it into the arms of the other sleeping mother, takes the live baby to herself. And now these two women now come before Solomon and they're they're both arguing over which baby, the living baby, the live child is. It's an amazing story. How do you prove it? Young Solomon, early in his rule over Israel, is sitting there thinking, okay, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. We don't have DNA testing. How am I going to figure out which mom is the right mom? And beyond that, they're both prostitutes, so this child is not growing up in a good home. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 24, the king said, Get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child, child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Brilliant. Sick, but brilliant. And then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, He shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. Wise, wise Solomon. What's the point? Well, the natural person is willing to divide to win is willing to separate even unto death so that they can feel like they have had success. This is why you see division in the church. Because a person in the natural self, in the carnal self, in the fleshly self, wants to win. I want my way to count. I want to win the argument. Therefore, divide. And if I can't get my way here, I'm out of here. I will go over there where they will understand me and I'll feel like a winner. And it kills the body. It divides the children of Christ. The true parent always will reject division so that the life of the body may be preserved. Not the natural man or woman, not the the fleshly man or woman, but the spiritual always seeks to maintain the unity and the life of the body. So now Paul comes along in, in the role of a true spiritual father. In fact, he will even refer to himself as that. Dealing with infantile division at the church at Corinth. And what he does is just like Solomon, he brings the healing sword, the sword of the word, to bear on this people. It says, indeed, even now you're not able to receive solid food. Verse 3, for you are still fleshly. And you are not, for since there, there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. And another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Now, you may recall, Papa Paul already had him in time out over this one. Back in chapter 1, verse 11, if you go back there, he says, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. That each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Remember we talked about that. Even the person saying, I am of Christ, is wrong because they're dividing. You can claim you're dividing in the name of God, but if you're dividing, something's wrong. 
And Paul says, has Christ been divided? And then he goes off, kind of changes direction. We think for a while, maybe he's forgotten to punish the kid. You remember maybe when you were a child that you hoped that mom and dad had forgotten. We will deal with this when we get home. And you hope by the time you got home that they forgot to discipline you. Well, Paul hasn't, but he had to go a different direction before he comes back to the, the division. What direction is that? The Spirit. He had to bring understanding to them about the ways of the Spirit of God, about the desire of God's Spirit, and about the concept that we have an understanding that is different than the natural world. If this is the natural world, click up, divide, whatever, doesn't matter. But we are of the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We are the body of Christ with the mind of Christ. Therefore, unity is paramount. And now he returns to this whole issue of their infantile behavior. Division is infantile. And it is a clear sign of an underfed milk toast fellowship. The church of the holy milk toast. Because that's all they can eat. So they eat very little of the word, do not understand unity, and when differences of opinion arise, division. The child is divided where the sword of the word is not taught. See, what Paul is saying is, if as a church you can't even get, get along, how can you grow strong in the meat of the word? How can I even start teaching you more important things if you can't even fellowship one with another? And mark this, I think you know it, church divisions worldwide are symptomatic of the spiritual immaturity of this age. The more immature the church, the more it will divide. The more mature the church or the fellowship, the more unified they will be. You want a true sign that His Spirit is here? We have a unified leadership. We have a unified body. We love each other. We don't always agree. Trust me. But we love each other and we seek to be together, even if we disagree. Well, that's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work. That's a good thing. Now, Paul calls these beloved children, and don't forget, as he rails into them in the next several chapters, don't forget how much he loves them. He started this church at Corinth. These people matter to Paul. But he calls them fleshly. Worse than sukikos, sarkikos, from that word sarks, which is the mesh of the flesh. The combination of skin and of muscle and of ligaments, it's all the stuff on the outside. It's not the internal organs or the bones, it's everything on the outside of that. That's the sarks, that's the stuff that rots off the body first. And understand that it is a fleshy and divisive thing when the very passage we studied on Sunday morning is used to promote something that divides the church. What do you mean? The passage talking about the natural man and the spiritual man. Talking about God has revealed these things through His Spirit. That to be spiritual means you you get to know God and and the Spirit searches all the things of God, speaks the things to us, gives us understanding, brings spiritual wisdom. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. And yet, this passage at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 has been used throughout the church to promote Christian elitism. Do you have the Spirit? What? Yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe He gave me His Spirit. Prove it. Do something that shows us, that proves to us you have the Spirit like we do. And if you can't, then you don't. And if you don't, you're not quite as spiritual as we are. 
Christian elitism. Brothers and sisters, I believe, looking at the Scriptures, it is sinful. Because it divides the body of Christ into the stronger, more spiritual faction and the weaker, less spiritual people. And you've got groups and division. You may even have heard the phrase carnal Christian. Listen, we can all be the carnal Christian from time to time. There's not a person in here, and this includes Pastor Les, who cannot sometimes be a carnal Christian. We are all capable of great sin. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever at the top of your spiritual walk think, I finally arrived. I'm here, baby. God is so lucky to have me on the team. In that moment, you are more carnal than you've ever been. That is what caused Satan to fall. Do you realize that? The carnality of pride? The puffing oneself up, the being so proud of who I am and what I've become and how spiritual I am that he tried to raise himself up above God and was cast out. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Read it. It's frightening. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, along with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, these chapters are not the dividing line between lesser and more superior Christians. As a matter of fact, there is no such line. You realize in the eyes of God there is no such thing as a more superior and a less superior Christian. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Equal footing. Equally seen by God. When He looks at me, He sees Jesus. He looks through Jesus, through the blood of Christ, and sees me as righteous. Thank you, Lord. And when He looks at Tom Shorthouse, playing the bass... Even if he misses a note, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. He looks through the blood of Christ. And and this beautifully intimate teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which really is about knowing Jesus, it gets twisted and, and ruined when people come along and they use it to say, if you ain't got what I got, you ain't got the Spirit. Well, not only is that bad English, it's bad theology. It's divisive, it's sectarian, it's dogmatic to say that my spiritual experience somehow puts me in better standing with Christ than yours. If I speak in tongues and you don't, well then I am closer to Jesus. (laughs) Did I hear a not? Thank you. If I have the gift of healing and you don't, I am more powerful in the faith. Not. We could do this all night. If I can raise somebody from the dead and you can't, then I am gloriously more godlike than you are. Thank you. This kind of thinking is the underlying problem of the church at Corinth. And what's most tragic about it is it denigrates the very message of the gospel. It undercuts the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7, quoting Jesus, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. And he writes, after saying above, the sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. These things are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Now, listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will, that is the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not once for the most spiritual. Or once for those who get it, who have the most gifts. Once for all, when you come into Christ Jesus, you are as saved as everybody else in Christ Jesus. You are as precious to Jesus as everybody else in the body of Christ. And there is no distinction. Maintain that thought. Let's make sure we never lose that. Because we are all equal sons and daughters of the King. And we ought to treat each other that way. And because someone can pray longer or more, more flowery language than someone else makes no difference. We all are the same. Parents understand this. As a father of six kids, I can tell you that all six of my children are equally loved. Absolutely loved. Every single one exactly the same. I've known Corey the longest, 26 years old. And I've known him, obviously, his whole life. <laughs> and so... You would think, well, you know Corey Longer, you know him better, you must love him a little bit more than David, who you've only had really the last seven years of his eight-year life. Nope. I love David just as much, sometimes more, than Corey. (laughs) I love them all exactly the same. I do like one over the other from time to time based on behavior, but I love them all the same. Youngest to oldest, at home or or moved out, biological or adopted, it makes no difference. All of my children are my children. I love them and there's nothing they can do to change that, good or bad. So it is in in the body of Christ. So it is as children of the living God. And so Paul doesn't write 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I know I'm kind of hovering there for a minute, but he didn't write that to elevate one group over another, the spiritual over the natural. He's saying all of us are capable of being natural, of capable of living in the natural man. And he's saying don't do it. Live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. It's a call to all believers equally. And every one of us can and ought to live in the Spirit. Rather than settling... For the soulish, natural person, or worse, the fleshly. Understand the unique relationships that we have. And all the anointings and the giftings, the pneumaticos, the charismas of His Holy Spirit, they are never, they are never to be status symbols among believers. Got it? Alright, verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You might want to take a big fat black ink pen and mark through opportunity. Because that word is not there. It's added by the translators to try and evoke some kind of understanding. I think it confuses what Paul is saying. Let me read it to you the other way. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. Gave what? Faith. You are able to believe, he says, whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. That's amazing and it's important to understand the Lord gave you faith. The Lord gave you belief. He didn't give you the opportunity to believe or the chance to believe or the, or the moment to believe. He gave you the very faith that kicked off your belief. 
And I think we will realize this much more substantially when we are with Jesus. The moment we'll look back and the moment that we came to faith in Jesus, we will note that He's the one that flipped the switch. Click! And we say, I think I'll believe. He doesn't subvert your will. He knows that's what your desire is. But He's the one who gives us not opportunity, but the very faith that we have to believe. And Paul and Apollos, Paul says, what are we in that process? We are merely farmhands. Farmhands? Read on. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He who plants and he who waters are one. What does he mean by that? Exactly what we've been talking about. That all the farmhands are on equal footing. They're one. They're all the same. Apollos, Paul, Cephas, doesn't make any difference. All these guys are simply working the field. Oh, they have different roles, different tasks, different jobs, just like we all do in the church. But we're all just farmhands. We're all there for the purpose of the harvest. And the cross is what does that to us all. The cross always brings us back to that equal footing. Different roles, equal footing with Jesus. Continuing on at the latter part of verse 8, he says, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. I love it. There are rewards, folks. According to labor, and that's incredibly important, he's not talking about salvation because you do not labor for your salvation. If he's talking about you getting something for doing something, it has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. So what here is Paul talking about? He's talking about, you could say, it's commission-based work in the harvest. If you work the harvest, you've been saved, you're part of the family, you're on the team, you're in the Father's household, but if you're out working the harvest, you get a commission. Based on what you bring in. You bring bring in more of the sheaves, you get different rewards, greater rewards, more rewards. I truly believe this, I'll prove it to you. But the word reward here is misos, and misos means wages. It means payment. And because we know Paul is already talking to saved people about the commission of their labor as children of God, we understand this is something different than our salvation. All are saved, but the Lord indicates through Paul here, and I've got rewards to give for the work that you do after you are saved. Back in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, Now, to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? He says to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, on the one hand, we have the righteousness of God that is given freely. It is not earned. It's credited to us simply by us believing in God. And you remember that belief was given to us by God in the first place. See how little we have to give him? How little I have to offer? Really? Other than just myself? It's not worked for our salvation. However, Jesus also said in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me 
to render to every man according to what he has done. That is not salvation. My reward is with me and I'm going to render. I'm going to recompense people. And if Doug has done a good job, he just might get in. But see, Leanne knows better. (laughs) We are not recompensed with salvation. We are recompensed with reward. Salvation is not deeds-based. But Paul is talking about deeds-based compensation for working the farm, working God's field. Well, okay, Rick, if, if you really believe that, then what are the rewards? What are they? Got a pen? Got paper? Write this down. I don't know. I have no idea. Now, I, the Bible mentions crowns, so there's something there. And those are given as instruments of heavenly worship to be given back in worship and praise and, and honor of Jesus. But when you start talking about rewards, I think one of the reasons why some teachers avoid it is because people really have gone off in weird directions. You know, people have said, well, it's, it's mansions, and the, and the harder you work, the greater your mansion. That's the case. I'm going to have a little shack. There are other people who say, no, it's levels of heaven. That's a Mormon theology. Depending on how you do and how hard you work, levels of heaven. Cosmic wives. Muslims say 72 virgins. And that concept just scares the living daylights out of me, i got to tell you. But when I think about this, when I think about rewards, what kind of reward do I want? What are the rewards I want more than anything else from the Father, from Jesus? I can think of two things. Number one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 says, Who is our hope, our joy, or our crown of exultation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming, you are our glory and our joy. You know, the farmhand takes great pleasure, takes great reward in the harvest itself. And if you have ever led someone to faith in Jesus Christ, you know this, there are few things that are a greater high. Few things that are more exciting, more encouraging than watching someone that you have talked to, prayed with, brought Jesus to, watching them accept Him as Lord and Savior. Leading them into the waters of baptism. Walking on with them now, brother and sister in Christ. Few things are more exciting than that. That in and of itself, the harvest, is a fantastic reward. And so in that case, the more of the sheaves that you bring in, the greater the reward. Because the more people you have been used by Jesus to bring to Jesus. And Paul talks about our crown. What's a crown? It's a circular thing. And I think that Paul's picture there is standing in the midst of a crown of people surrounding you saying, thank you for introducing me to Jesus and salvation. That's a great reward. But there's another reward I like even more. One that I desire even more. And it is simply to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. To have my Jesus proud of me? I honestly, I can't think of anything better. That's what I long for. Now, Paul refers to them, to the church at Corinth, not only as God's field, 
But as God's building, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And from verses 9 through 17, this contains one of the best single teachings in all of the Bible on how to build a church. And you can tell by the way I'm setting this up that we're going to save it for Sunday. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18, let no man deceive himself, Paul writes. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. Now stop there for a second. They just had a meeting of the EU today. Maybe you heard about that. 27 nations are left. There were 28. Britain's out. So now there's 27, and David Cameron was not invited. First meeting that they've had, that David Cameron, Prime Minister of Great Britain, was not invited to. And they got all their 27 heads together and began to discuss, what are they going to do? How are they going to fix it? I think about these great political meetings that happen, these geopolitical gatherings all around the world, and I think how brilliant these people are. And we all wonder, what are they accomplishing? There was another gathering here recently um, of President Obama, along with the Canadian Prime Minister, along with, I believe, was it the French Prime Minister? They had a little summit And they came out ready to talk about the most important issues. And the first one was gay rights. And the second issue was global warming. And in all their wisdom, these were the two primary issues they were discussing on the day of the suicide attack in in Turkey. The wisdom of man is foolishness before God. The things that we uphold, that we esteem, that we find so important, so critical. In the eyes of the Lord, they are just foolish. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Absolute foolishness. Now, he has been talking about this foolishness. And and he's saying, don't be deceived by false wisdom. And in this context, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived by spiritual elitism. Don't be drawn off course of a true and genuine relationship with Jesus for the buzz of some kind of more spiritual group. It's dangerous. It can never fulfill and is not the point of the gifts and the, and the anointings of the Holy Spirit. Those are given for relationship, as we talked about. And you can't reach the lowly and the struggling and the humble believer or non-believer if you're a spiritual elitist. Any more than the Pharisee could reach the publican. When we're prideful in our faith, we are a mess. No, we must become foolish. Foolish, Paul says. Foolish in the eyes of the natural world, to whom the wisdom of God is foolishness. And, listen to this, we also need to learn how to become foolish in the eyes of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's okay to be dumb. It's okay not to exalt yourself. It is okay to take off the mask and let people see that you do have weaknesses and flaws. That we are not a perfect people, any one of us. You know what that does when you take off the mask? It allows everybody else to take off their masks too. Suddenly it's real. 
suddenly we can just talk to each other as, as people who are beloved by God, saved by the blood of Christ, and walking this road together. Relationship. And it's, again, authentic, legitimate. We need, we need to take off the mask because you know what? As spiritual people, we all are discerning how silly we all are anyway. We all know when someone's putting on spiritual airs. When someone's trying to look the part, we know. We know who you are and we know what you're doing. Knock it off. None of us are impressed. It's being real before each other and before God. Now, Paul, in talking about this foolishness, he references two more of the Hebrew Scriptures. Job chapter 5, verse 13 is the first one. Which is there in verse 19. Of 1 Corinthians 3. Here's Job's translation. Job 5.13. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. And the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Job 5.13. The second quote there is from Psalm 94.11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are a mere breath. They're a breath. And sometimes they're bad breath. But they are but a breath. Now, this is interesting to me. I was looking at these two verses and thinking about them, and I realized, wait a minute. This is Job chapter 5, verse 13. Yeah. So, Paul is quoting Eliphaz the Temanite, who ain't too bright. He's a bit uptight. And he's mostly not right. Job's three friends. And this, this is so important because when you're studying Job, and, and when we went back and, and studied through Job, I was very careful to be sure, and you need to be sure, who's doing the talking. Because when you study through Job, there are things that are said in the book of Job that are not right. Oh, but they're Scripture. Yeah, but they're quotations of guys who, even though they might have been saying things that were kind of right, they were saying them wrong. What do you mean, Rick? Paul quotes this guy Eliphaz as a biblical truth, as words of biblical truth. Eliphaz, who's wrong in his approach to Job. And Paul's now quoting him. Why? Because it is biblical truth. Because what Eliphaz says is absolutely true. The problem is not with the words spoken. The problem is with the heart of the speaker. And the fact that along comes Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Zophar the Neamathite, and their teeny-weeny little friend, Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> and these three friends were coming to Job, and if you read through the book, they are kicking him when he's down. They are dumping empty platitudes that are devoid of empathy. Even when they say what is correct, what is sound biblically, the fact that they're using it to attack Job when he's hurting is wrong. You see, you can even speak the truth and harm somebody. Which is why the Bible tells us we are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Always speak the truth, but do it in love. We do it for the benefit of a brother, for the benefit of the sister, to maintain the unity of the body, the unity of the spirit, and the bond of peace. And if I can't say it, if I can't speak it in the fullness of God's love, I ought to keep my mouth shut tight, unlike the Temanite. Got it? It's why 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. 
Paul stops in mid-spiritual breath and says, hold on, wait a minute, remember the most important thing here is love. That the gifts are about love. Loving one another in the body. You pour out love with giftings. Love with our sanctified and holy living. And you got a new thing. You have grace along with spiritual giftedness. Look out. Stuff's going to happen. And it will bless the name of Jesus. Well, verse 21, continuing. Paul then writes, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. All things belong to you. He says, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Wow. Paul says, here's the deal. You guys are saying you're of Apollos, and you're of Cephas, and you're of Paul, and you're of Christ, and you're all divided up. Don't you understand? All things, literally, what he says here, all things are yours. All things are yours. He begins with the petty and he ends with the profound. The petty, they're saying, I'm a Paul. I'm Pauline in my faith. Well, I'm an Apollosian. I'm of Apollos. Well, then I'm a Cephasian. I'm a sea fisherman. I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus. I'm one of the true Christians. And it's all petty. And then Paul draws them into this amazing, profound place. He says, they're all yours. You can have Apollos, Paul, Peter, Jesus. You can have all of those teachings in your library. It's fine. You don't have to choose one. Isn't that great? You don't have to choose one Bible teacher to listen to. I listen to several. I've got a bunch of different guys that I love to listen to. And depending on the day, I will listen to a different pastor. And I I can be blessed by all of them. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and of course, Christ. But this is amazing because you belong to Jesus. You belong to Him. Here's the profound. We limit ourselves when we claim one person to follow. When we claim one direction, one denomination to, to adhere to. We limit ourselves. I'm of Luther. I'm of Wesley. I'm of Minnow. I'm of Calvin. Hey, you know what? They all brought good things to the mix. And they all brought bad things. Luther was a raging anti-Semite. Or anti-Semite. Are you of Luther? Are you a, a Jew hater? Luther was. Oh, but, but Rick, he, Reformation, and, and he did, yeah, he did marvelous things. And he broke the chains of of Catholicism over the known Christian world at the time. Fantastic, wonderful. Hey, there are Catholic theologians that bring great things to the table. When you pick one, when you say, I am of this or I am of that or I am of the other, you limit yourself. But God, Paul is saying, all things belong to you. God unleashes, He takes off all limitations in Jesus. I'm not limited to following one perspective. I just follow Jesus Christ. And because all things belong to Jesus, guess what? All things are mine. They are. This world belongs to me. How can you say that, Rick? Well, because it belongs to my Jesus and I'm in His family. So I got dibs. 
All these things are yours, he says. And then, in the midst of this, Paul does something else. He lists out what what one commentator writes, the ultimate tyrannies of human existence to which people are lifelong bondage as slaves. Here are the tyrannies. He lists these five things. The world, life, death, present, and future. He says there are all these things, and guess what? They all belong to you too. What do you mean, Paul? You're sitting here arguing over denominational differences, which is what the Corinthians were doing. They were denominationalizing. They were dividing up based on names. I am of Paul. I am the Apollos sect. I am of Cephas. And you're having this petty arguments, but in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've got it all. You've got it all. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He says in Romans 8.38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You realize we're standing right back in the relationship we talked about on Sunday? You belong to Christ. And therefore all things are yours. It's all about belonging, man. It's about belonging. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to past addictions. You don't belong to previous abuses. You don't belong to present fears. Fear of death. You don't belong to the grindstone of life. All those things are yours. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Don't worry, you get all that. You don't have to strive for it. And on your worst day, spiritual blessings can be poured out. Monday was a bummer day for Anna Murray. My 18-year-old daughter, she missed her flight to Wisconsin. Down to the airport early Monday morning. We got up super early, drove down there to make sure we were down there on time. Traffic was horrible down to Seattle. We got to the airport finally. The TSA lines were ridiculous. Two hours we stood in the TSA line. And then finally she got to the point of security and I had to break off from her and I had my cell phone and she had hers. And this is the first time she's flown by herself. She goes through security looking back over her shoulder, you know, at me. And then heads around the corner and she disappears and she's headed toward the Seagate. C-17, I think. She heads off to the gate and I wait and I'm watching my phone and she texts me, I'm at the gate. I'm like, yes! <laughs> great! Have a great flight! And I get in the car and I leave. I said we can all be foolish. <laughs> the flight was leaving at 9.25. She was at the gate at 9.15. At 9.40 I get a text. Am I supposed to be on the plane? My heart just went... I mean, stopped. I'm like, no, no. I turn the car around. I head back toward the airport. We find out that she was there. But since the plane had filled up, she didn't know to go on and and was kind of confused by it. And the plane left. So I'm like, fantastic. Her sister lives in Wisconsin. Anna Marie's going to visit Hannah. She's been looking forward to this for months. So we went back into the airport. And the ticket, I, I can't explain this, folks. 
it got rebooked. And the people at the airport don't know how it got rebooked. It got rebooked for the next morning, same flight the next day, no charge. Now, if you miss a flight, you have to pay the difference on the ticket. And they told her that at the gate. It's going to be at least 200 bucks because you're going to have to pay the difference on the ticket. And the ticket for tomorrow's flight is this much more. And so she comes back to me. We go up to the help desk and we say, you know, what's it going to cost us to rebook? And, and, I, and you know, I'm, I'm messing with my wallet. And just going, what's it going to cost? And the guy's looking at it and he goes, huh, huh. She's booked for tomorrow's flight. I'm like, Jesus got in the system, bro. (laughs) It was awesome. And then Honor Marie, still a little bummed, got to go to the International House of Pancakes with her dad. We had breakfast. Cheryl and Naomi and David, they hopped in the van. They drove down. We met up in Linwood, and we went out to the movies together. So she got to go to a movie. All this cost me more than another flight would have. So, you know, whatever. We crashed at a friend's house down in Seattle, five minutes from the airport. Tuesday morning, got up early, made it to the airport. She got on her flight with a smile as big as here to Wisconsin. And you see, the worst situations happen. But when you belong to Jesus, you know He's going to fix it. He's going to work stuff out. And you know what? It's not always that wonderful in the moment. I mean, you may go through the entire day and your head hits the pillow and you're lying there going, I could have done without that entire day today, Lord. (laughs) And it's only weeks later that you realize why you had to walk through that dark place. But you know what? You belong to Jesus. Don't forget you belong to Jesus. The whole time, Honoré was all bummed out. I kept saying to her, look, look, we're going to get you there. And it's not like you're lost at the airport. I'm here. I kept saying, you get to spend the whole day with your dad. This is wonderful. (laughs) You belong to Jesus. And so in this atmosphere of belonging, Paul continues chapter 4. Now, just stay with me because this this is going to fly by. Most likely. Verse (laughs) 1. Let a man regard us in this manner. Okay, we're done with the division and your group and that group. Okay, look, look. Here's how you are to think about us. Here's how you're to look at us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. Servants. Huperatus. Huperatus in the Greek means under rower. Perhaps you've heard that definition before. Under We are under rowers of Christ. Might not mean a whole lot to you, but in the Roman world of the slave ships, the phrase under rower was huge. It meant you are in the belly of the ship and you are going to row to your death. You will spend your life in service of that which is going on everywhere else. Paul says that's all we are. We are under rowers for Christ Jesus. He says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Oh, stewards. Well, that's got to be a little better, right? Oikonomos. Oikonomos in the Greek means, well, I think the closest contemporary word would be butler. We are butlers. That is, we're in charge of the house, but we're still slaves. You Downton Abbey fans who, who watch that horribly tragic show... I stopped and I think it was season three because I'm like, no, if they're going to kill off people like that, I'm done. But the butler, 
over the household staff. He had a role. He was important. He had things to do. But in the household itself, he was a slave. Paul says that's all we are. We are slaves, butlers and under rowers. But Jesus said this, Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. You want the reward of well done, good and faithful slave? Then you serve the house. You row the ship. You do whatever it takes for the sake of our Lord Jesus because when He comes, everything, every act will have been absolutely worth it. Butlers and under rowers, yet in Christ, remember, they have all things. All things are yours in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. We all belong to each other. One wonderful, glorious, rejoicing, unified family. And we're butlers and under rowers. Now, the rest of chapter 4, and the reason why we can move through it quickly, is Paul defending himself. He is reestablishing his right to say the things that he is saying to the people at Corinth. And he does it with, with three examples. He describes himself in three different ways. I will give you these three and we'll be done tonight. Number one, Paul is the examined servant. The examined servant. The butler, the under rower, verse 2. He goes on and says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards, of butlers, <laughs> that one be found trustworthy. I love it. You want to know what the greatest requirement is of the servant of the Lord? Faithfulness. Just keep doing it. Just keep rowing. Just keep rowing. Just keep rowing. <laughs> Just keep serving, just keep serving, just keep serving. But, but I, I've, I've been serving like a long time, Lord. I mean, it's been like two weeks. What's next? Just keep serving, just keep serving. It is required of servants to be found faithful. Yeah, but, but what about climbing the great spiritual mountain? What about reaching the heights of, of a Billy Graham? That's not your concern. You don't need to worry about that. Just keep serving. Oh yeah, but I don't know, there's so much more I could do. Just keep serving. It is required of a steward that he be found trustworthy. Faithful is the word in the Greek. But to me, Paul says, it's, it's a very small thing that I may be examined <laughs> by you. In other, in other words, their examinations, their assessments, their comments about Paul, which had reached his ears, no big deal. I know you guys have complained about me. I know you said things behind my back. Whatever. In fact, that's kind of what you could label this section as a great big W on the forehead of Paul. He's saying, what if? It's a very little thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. The examined servant understands something here, my friends. That on our best day, our righteousness is filthy rags. That in my best, holiest moment, I would still be absolutely lost without Jesus Christ. Without Him, uh, nothing. But, I don't ride around on a guilt trip. 
I'm going to go around saying, I'm just so lowly, I'm just so terrible, I'm just so sinful. No, I don't. Why? Because God examines me, and as we talked about, looks through the blood of Jesus at me and sees a righteous son. So I don't examine myself. I don't worry about it. And if someone else decides that they want to put me down or say things about me or examine me through the lens of their great spirituality, whatever. Whatever. I am just so thankful that when God examines me as He does, He sees His Son. The examined servant is only truly examined by the Lord and His assessment is the only one that matters. That's great to remember when people are talking you down. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Verse 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God, the examined servant. This is some of the best advice that Paul could give the church. Great advice for us today. The faithful servant, again, just does what he or what she is called to do, and we leave all spiritual examination to the Lord. We don't worry. Am I spiritual enough? Am I righteous enough? Don't worry about it. God's got that covered. We don't look around and go, is Jim as spiritual as I am? Or am I as spiritual as he is? Don't do that. Leave it. God's the one who will have the examination. He's the one who's going to pass out the test. But guess what? Notice what he says at the end of verse 5. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What does that mean? You already passed the examination. He doesn't say each man's rebuke or praise will come from God. He says each man's praise. So God's going to examine you at the proper time when He comes and you're going to be praised. I love this. Leave the examination to the Lord. Now, quickly, that doesn't mean that we tolerate or shrug off sin in the body of Christ. It means we don't sit here and we look at each other and we try to determine who is more or less spiritual. That we don't do. But sin, we judge for what it is. Sin is sin. And sin causes degradation in the body. Sin brings about decay. Sin is a cancer in the church. And so we have to deal with it. We don't ignore it. The doctor calls and says, we think there's a cancerous mass. You don't say, ah, okay, whatever, and sweep it under the carpet. You deal with it. You fight it. You see that it's removed. Not the person, but the sin. And so, yes, we are to judge sin for what it is. But when it comes to another believer's spiritual relationship with Jesus, man, let the praise come to them from God. Verse 6. The next example he gives. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. I like that. Don't exceed what's written. Don't exceed the Scriptures. Don't go off in some tangent, some unbiblical, unbiblical wild direction. Don't exceed what's written. Just stick to it. So that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Well, I'm so spiritual. Where did it come from? 
I have faith. Where did it come from? I have this gift or that anointing or that gift. Where did it come from? didn't come from you. What are you boasting about? If you are going to boast, you boast in the Lord. Because it all comes from Him. Now, if all things belong to us because we belong to Jesus, Paul's saying, why do we act somehow like we have earned it? Like Nebuchadnezzar walking the roof of his palace on a beautiful day in Babylon. And he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This is Daniel chapter 4. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you, seven years, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws, and he looked like Saddam Hussein. <laughs> you remember when they caught Saddam? Did you know that Saddam Hussein himself said, I am the contemporary Nebuchadnezzar? And truly he was. And if you want a good picture for what Nebuchadnezzar looked like in this season of his life, of his insanity, look at the pictures of when Saddam Hussein was captured and pulled out of his little hidey hole. That was Nebuchadnezzar. There is the glory and the greatness of man. But... At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. You know what's amazing? Daniel chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's the only chapter in the entire book of Daniel that's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Chaldean, Babylonian, because Nebuchadnezzar wrote it himself. And he said, he experienced, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. That always happens. If you're feeling a little insane, a little crazy, raise your eyes to heaven. Reason will return. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. But listen to this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And I really wonder if perhaps Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Because he understood what Paul is talking about. We didn't earn anything. If we glory in anything, if we boast in anything, we boast in the Lord. Now, the second example. Paul is first the examined servant. He is now the inferior apostle. The inferior apostle. And Paul launches into this classic Pauline sarcasm. He says to the church of Corinth, You are already filled. You have already become 
rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. (laughs) For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we, the inferior apostle Paul writes, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you, Corinthians, oh, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we, we are without honor. Paul says to this present hour, we, we are both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed. Man, we're wearing last year's fashion. We are roughly treated. We're homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, when we we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I'll just point out to you, scum of the world, the word scum is the same word that they use for dog stuff. Okay? As I mentioned on Sunday, I think it was first service, I could say to Reggie, you have released the scum of the world in my living room. (laughs) We're the scum of the world, the inferior apostles. Paul lowers the hammer of heavy-duty irony here. And it is thick. He pounds on the foolishness of the filled, the rich, the royal, the prudent, the strong, the distinguished Corinthians who thought they were so wise. Oh yes, you're the brilliant ones, he says. We, on the other hand, look like this. We're the scum of the earth. We apostles, yeah, we're the dregs. We're the reviled, the persecuted, the slandered, the scum. And we're also the ones who are returning blessing for insult. The ones who are enduring abuse. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Listen to what he said again. He says there in verse 13, when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. He says right before there, when we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Hang on a second. Wait. That sounds just like Jesus. Who do you want to be like? Who do you want to look like? Paul says, we're like Jesus. Mark 15, 29, I'll just read it to you quickly. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe... And Mark even tells us those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Oh, I know one of the thieves on the cross recognized who Jesus was, but not at first. Not at first. Mark says very very clearly both of these crummy criminals were casting insults at Jesus and the cross in the center, making fun of Him, joining in with the mocking and the scorning and the spitting and all the slander that was going on. They were looking at Jesus and they were saying, Ha! This, this, this Jesus! Save us! Save yourself! Both criminals. 
So why did the one criminal change his mind? Same reason I did, the cross. He saw the Christ on the cross. He saw while being reviled, he blessed. Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. He saw the compassion of the dying man. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The thief saw these things in Jesus and it changed his heart in the moment of his death. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, in that moment of ultimate proof that it's nothing that we do to save ourselves, said, today you will be with me in paradise. He saw Jesus on the cross. Paul says, you know, that's that's really what we're like. And what it all boils down to is this, gang, the elitist Christian need only remember the Galilean rabbi. If you start to be puffed up in your spirituality, remember Jesus, so despised by the world, and dismount that high horse of holy superiority. Because we're longing to, we're trying to, we want to be like Jesus. So humble yourself and serve. Now I belong to Jesus. How was He glorified? On the cross. The examined servant, the inferior apostle, and finally Paul concludes with this. He is the admonishing Father. The admonishing Father. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Paul says, I am. And he was right. Now, please understand, Paul's already said he's talking figuratively. He's trying to make a point. He's reminding them now that he is the one who fathered the church at Corinth. Yes, the church belongs to Jesus through the the blessing and the grace of Jesus Christ, but Paul was the one sent by God to plant that church. He planted. Apollos watered. Many other tutors came and, and helped the growth process, but Paul fathered the church at Corinth and he's reminding them, look, guys, I was there for your birth. This is me. Remember Paul? I, I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. Why is he saying that? To prove to them, to help them remember, he has the right to say what he's saying. He brought Jesus to them in the first place. Verse 16. Therefore, I love this. This is classic Paul. I exhort you, be imitators of me. Dude, I don't know if I could say that. In fact, I think I pretty much said the opposite. Don't be like me. Paul says, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, Timotheus, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Wow. Who among us can say that? Show of hands, who here feels like they're strong enough in Jesus and spiritual enough and righteous enough to say, follow me? Hey, be imitators of me. Not one hand goes up. What a pathetic... Why can't we say that? Well, well, because it's arrogant. Not for someone who is taking up his cross and following Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
Imitate me. Be imitators of me. How, Paul? Of my ways which are in Christ. So I can very fairly say to you all tonight, everything that I do that is Christ-like, do it. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is the great ethical teacher of the church. Morality, values, behaviors. How do we do this? What does it look like? And Paul says, look at me. I'm following Jesus. This is what it looks like. Imitate me, he says. And rightly so. Not because Paul is so great, but because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. I mean, think about it. Figurative language. What father doesn't say that to their own child? Imitate me, says a father. Paul is saying the same thing, but sometimes parental imitation is not enough and warning becomes quite necessary. Verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Just wait till your father gets home. (laughs) But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Some of you leaders in Corinth are talking a big talk. Let's see where the power is. This is this is a stunning statement of Paul. He says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And he is talking directly to the problem children. You know, the troublemakers at Corinth, the spiritual bullies. And what Paul is declaring here is that all foolish, false, spiritual rhetoric falls apart in light of true kingdom power. And Paul says, I'm coming, and I will show you power. Remember what Paul said originally back in chapter 2? He said, when I came to you, I didn't come in words of great wisdom. I came to you in the Spirit and in power. That's why that church is there. Because of the power of God that was at work through this man, stumbling over his words, choosing only to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now Paul says, I'm coming back, and I will come back with that same power. Where will your rhetoric be then? Where are the Paulites or the Apollosites or the, or the Cephasites or those who say, we are the true Christians? Where are you? Where will your words be when I show up? He is putting on notice those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. 2 Timothy 3.5 And in verse 21 he says, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I'm coming back and in verse chapter 15 of the letter Paul's going to tell them how. He's got his plans are all laid out. Here's my itinerary. I will be there soon. How do you want me to come? My Corinthian children, do you want me to come as a loving, gracious, embracing father? Gentle? Or do you want me to bring the rod? I wonder when they read that if if some of these big-mouthed bad boys didn't go, he's coming back. (laughs) Yes, he is. Jesus is coming back. And the question is, will you meet Him caught up in the air? 1 Thessalonians 4.17 In the love and the embrace of Jesus carried off to a holy honeymoon? Or will you meet Him on the ground and be broken with a rod 
of iron. Psalm 2, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. He is coming, and when He comes back to the earth, it will be with a rod. Shall I come in a spirit of gentleness and love, or come with a rod? What's it going to be? 